It's good to see you all. Lots of things happening around the place at the moment, isn't there? And uh, it's good to see some people back from holidays, including John and others. But uh, it's also that time of the year, um, Year 12s, a couple of them around the place, getting close to exams, finishing off assignments. Is that right, Nessie? Nicole's there as well too, I think. I can remember back SATAC selections, trying to work out what the future holds and big decisions to make, and your whole destiny is all wrapped around the next few months, isn't it? No, it's not. Um, I can remember my days back in Year 12, not sure what I was going to do. I was either going to be a doctor or a music teacher, believe it or not. Um, and all through Year 11 and 12, I really wasn't sure. Back in my day, we had five exams we had to do. Um, but I remember before every exam making the point of reading Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. Sure, many of you know it. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Acknowledge him in all your ways and he will make straight your paths. I didn't know where I was going to go after year 12. My SATAC form had medicine, medicine, music. I left it up to the Lord. I wanted to do his will. I wanted to be in his word. I wanted to make a choice and I knew my choices would have consequences. But I wanted to trust the Lord in all of that. In the end, missed out on medicine by a few percent and now here I am a full-time pastor, no longer a music teacher. The Lord has his ways, doesn't he? This morning, I want to talk to us out of the passage we've heard about listening to the word of the Lord and how important it is to hear God's word. And also want to say that our choices have consequences in and under God's word and God's sovereign will. Last week in our family service, I did provide notes for some of our younger folk and I had a PowerPoint for the rest of us and a number of you shared how helpful it was to have some visuals and some things to look at. Well, this morning, haven't got that, but I do want you to open your Bibles up because there's some really good notes in there. They're called verses and passages and chapters um, and you actually find some visuals there. There's plenty in this story. I don't know if you were visualising some of what Miriam was reading. Some of it a little gruesome, isn't it? But that will help us uh, keep on track this morning. As I said, two points, only two points, not even worth a PowerPoint. Listening to the word of the Lord is really important. And our choices have consequences. Choosing not to listen to the word of God brings curse and death. Listening to God's word brings life and blessing. And we see that play out for Saul quite dramatically this morning. But if we are going to listen, if we are going to hear the word of the Lord with the sort of ears that we're talking about this morning, we actually need more than just our own ears. We need the help of God. We need the work of the Spirit in our own lives. Just as he was present in the writing of Scripture, so we need the Lord's power and presence through the Spirit to help us hear that word. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are a God who speaks to your people. We thank you for this written word that you've given to people in ages past as you've spoken to them and now written down, inspired by your spirit for us to read today. Father, we pray by that same spirit you would illuminate our hearts and minds that this word written for us would be a word to us, you speaking to us this morning. So Father, grant to us ears to hear with ears of faith, hearts of hope and love in your Son. By the power of your Spirit, we pray. Amen. 
we come this morning and next week to this, uh, it's really a third section of this book of 1 Samuel, uh, which we've been going through the past few months. Um, if you remember that the seesaw um, message we had a couple of months ago with Hannah's prayer, the rise and the fall that takes place. We've had the, the rise of Samuel and the fall of Eli, that first movement of the seesaw, so to speak, um, effectively or eventually bringing that priesthood of Eli's family to an end. And then in chapter 8, we've had the rise of Saul as the people rejected the Lord as their king. And then this morning in chapter 15, we really get to the, the ultimate fall of Saul and next week the rise of David as king. That's what's taking place here in the big scheme of 1 Samuel. Um, and as I said, two main points this morning, but you would have, or I, I sort of hope your eyebrows might have been raised or there might have been a few cringeworthy moments as we heard the message this morning, I've heard the reading this morning, because this chapter raises a couple of major issues for us, I think. Namely, the notion of God devoting an entire people group to total destruction. Did that get your attention? Raise your eyebrows or a few questions. And secondly, does the Lord have regret or not? The version we had read for us had it a little bit differently, that the Lord had grief and he regretted and he doesn't change his mind. But the word there is actually the same each time. One minute we're told the Lord regrets having made Saul king. The next minute, that's in verse 11. In verse 29, we read, The God of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man, that he should have regret. Only to finish the chapter with the repeat of the statement, the Lord regretted that he made Saul king. So does he regret or not? Even a cursory read of this chapter should raise that question in our minds. It's easy to get caught up in those big issues um, and completely miss the main point of this morning. The, the big part of the story is, well, Saul's rejected by the Lord as king. What I actually want us to hear this morning through those, I actually think those two other issues uh, support these points of listening to the Lord and his voice and that our choices have consequences. We won't let those other issues get in the way. I think they actually support what the Lord wants us to hear this morning. The writer of 1 Samuel, turning our attention back to verse 1, makes it pretty clear what the main point is this morning. In Hebrew, the language, simply put, um, they didn't have big bold letters or italics or highlighter pens to, to make to emphasise points for us. They didn't have PowerPoints on a screen. Instead, they would often either put a word or phrase in prime position, a point of emphasis, or they would repeat that word or phrase. And the writer here does both. And the repeated word or phrase through this chapter is to listen, to hear or obey the voice of the Lord. It appears in pole position at the very beginning of the chapter and it occurs eight times throughout the chapter. Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. That's the command here for Saul. The rest of the chapter is the outworking of that command and his obedience to it or not. We read it again later on, verse 19. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Verse 20, Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. He thought he had. We'll try to convince Samuel he had. Verse 22, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. And verse 24, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned 
for I have transgressed the covenant of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. He chose to listen to a different voice than the voice of the Lord. So the importance of hearing and doing God's word lies at the heart of this chapter. Hence our first main point, listening to the word of the Lord is really important. In fact, it's life to us, isn't it? The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. God's covenant king, his first responsibility and priority was to take for himself a copy of the law, to read it and to meditate it so that he might learn to fear the Lord and not move from the left to the right, to keep God's word. Friday morning last week, most of us would have woken up to the news of the death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. Seventy years ago, she answered this question at her coronation ceremony. Will you, to the utmost of your power, maintain the laws of God and the true profession of the gospel? To which she answered, all this I promise to do. King Charles will most likely answer the same question in coming days. For the Queen's 90th birthday, I think it was, there was a book written. I think it was called The Queen Who Serves and the King She Serves. Is that right? I had it here. Let me double check. The Servant Queen and the King She Serves. It's a good title. Good way to rule and to reign, isn't it? Knowing actually that as king or queen, you're a servant under a king who reigns. Faithful, genuine leadership under God depends upon the word of the Lord, depends upon keeping that word, hearing it and keeping it. And that's not only for kings and queens, is it? It's for all God's people, for all of us. We've all been made in his image and together as humanity we've been given dominion, reign, over creation according to his blessing and God's word which we're to listen to and obey so grab a copy of God's word grab a bible and open it it's no good sitting still and shut on your bedside table learn to fear the Lord listen to the word of the Lord and do it and I would strongly suggest actually a hard copy not just your phone copy as helpful as they are to have wherever you go You can come and speak to me later if you want to know why I suggest that in today's day and age. Jesus once said to his disciples, are you going to leave me too? A whole lot of people had heard him preach and they started leaving. Are you going to leave as well? What did Peter say? Lord, you have the words of eternal life. Where else are we going to go? Who else are we going to listen to? How wonderful would it be if that was the attitude of every Christian believer? Words of eternal life. I don't want to listen to any other word but yours. We're told in the Old Testament, aren't we? We cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Which means if we don't live by the word of the Lord, if we do try to live by bread alone or we listen to another voice, what happens we become malnourished we starve for lack of good food and eventually we will die if it's by living if it's by every word of the the, 
every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord, we live. If we're not feeding on that, we won't live. We surely won't flourish and bear any fruit for the kingdom if we reject or ignore God's word. And that message is all the way through scripture, isn't it? Psalm 1 teaches us the one who blessed is the man who loves the word, who meditates on it day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water, yields its fruit, its fruit, its grows strong, its leaf does not wither. Everything he does, he prospers. Sounds pretty good. It's life. But not so the wicked. Not so those who reject God's word and don't delight in it. Their way, we're told, will perish. And Jesus himself said, if you don't abide in me and my word, and if my word doesn't abide in you, you won't bear any fruit. You can't. You haven't got the roots in the right soil. And those branches which don't bear any fruit, well, they're not only pruned, they're cut off and thrown away into the fire. And he even says something similar to the seven churches at the very end of scripture in Revelation their lampstand will be taken away if they don't hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And here in 1 Samuel 15, we have a real-life example of that, this cutting and pruning. God takes his secateurs and cuts off the unfruitful branch of Saul, making way for a new branch, David, to come, one which will bear fruit. And we need to note here that Saul's disobedience in this chapter, this is not just a one-off, this is not a a misdemeanour or an error that could be explained away and sorry Lord, I'll do better next time sort of thing. No, it's made clear here. Have a look at verse 11. The Lord says, I regret that I've made Saul king, not because he's disobeyed me, but because he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. It's not just that he hasn't fulfilled the command, he's turned his back on God. And that's why the consequences are so great here. The situation is dire and it requires more than just a bit of snipping and pruning. It actually requires getting rid of this diseased dead wood altogether because Saul has actually rejected the Lord altogether. So the master gardener, the vine dresser, does his cutting and his pruning and has to set Saul aside, rejecting him as king of Israel to make way for a new shoot for David, the branch of Jesse, who, far from perfect, we know that, don't we, about David, but he is a man after the Lord's own heart. And he will bear much fruit to the glory of God because God is working with him, as we're going to hear in the coming weeks. That's the heart of the matter in this chapter. God's told Saul to do something, to devote the Amalekites to destruction. That's the word of the Lord to Saul. Verses 4 to 9 tell us that Saul didn't do it. He thought he did pretty well. He got rid of most of them. Anything worthless and useless he destroyed, but he kept the best bits. That was Saul's choice. And the consequence is really from verse 10 to the end. The Lord's rejection of Saul as king. Listening to God's word is really important. And our choices about that word have consequences.
And in the Bible, listening to God's word, hearing it and doing it, are actually pretty much one and the same thing. So much so, Sinclair Ferguson notes, how in the Old Testament you hardly ever see the word faith. It only occurs a few times. It's more of a New Testament word. But that's because in the Old Testament, faith is equated to hearing God's word and doing it. When you see trust and obey, that's the action of faith in the Old Testament. Abraham heard God's word, go. Abraham went. And he was credited with righteousness for his faith. We hear in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, he heard God's word and he did it. And so when we disobey God's word, when we reject it, it's actually a sign of disbelief, unbelief in God's word and who God is. Saul comes undone here as king, his failure as king, because of his disbelief. He's turned away from the Lord altogether. He's chosen another way. He's actually removed himself from God's blessing by not listening to his word, and so the Lord rejects him as king. He hands him over to his own choice. Sobering, isn't it? Saul actually thinks he's done okay. He's actually happy as Larry when Samuel appears. In fact, truth be told, Saul isn't actually there when Samuel first arrives. Have a look at verse 12. Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, rocks up, goes to see where Saul is, but he's not there. Why not? He's on his way to Gilgal because he's just been away. What is he doing? Erecting a monument for himself, honouring himself. A clear sign of Saul's turning away from the Lord and turning ultimately to himself as king. Wanting to make himself big, even though we're going to hear later he thinks little of himself. He's got to make up for that in some way, doesn't he? Make himself big in the eyes of the people. But Saul, sorry, Samuel did come to Saul. He went and chased him down and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. How are you going, Samuel? I've performed the commandment of the Lord. Like I said, happy as Larry, oblivious to any wrongdoing. And just as on a previous occasion, you might remember when Samuel appeared finally, having waited a whole week, Saul's been waiting for him, the smell of the sacrifices would have wafted through before Samuel even arrived to the camp. This time it's not the smell, but it's the sound that Samuel would have heard before he came to see Saul. And in what I think is one of the best one-liners of Scripture, Samuel says to Saul, What then is this bleating of sheep and the lowing of oxen that I hear? Blessed be the Lord, I've done all he commanded. Matt, Matt. They're meant to be devoted to destruction, Saul. What's going on here? We've said the important thing here is listening to hearing the word of the Lord because what we hear when someone speaks is actually what's in their heart. Out of the abundance of his heart, a man speaks, or a different translation, for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. The reason we live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord is because everything God speaks comes from his heart. God's word actually drives us into the very heart of the Lord reveals God's heart to us. What is it Samuel hears here? (laughs) Blessed be the Lord, everything's okay, but no, no, there's all this barring and mooing going on, (laughs) the lowing of oxen and cattle. 
and that actually drowns out anything Saul says effectively and exposes Saul's heart. He hasn't done according to the Lord's command. He thinks he has, but he hasn't. Verse 20, Saul said to Samuel, But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I've brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I've devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, the sheep and the oxen, the best things devoted to destruction, to the sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. You pick up the passing of the blame there. I've done this, but the people. And why are we doing it? We're going we're to worship the Lord with it. Passing the blame seems to be the pattern from Adam and Eve onwards, doesn't it? For any sinner refusing to recognise their sin and repent. We do it. I do it. But whatever our excuses, there's none here for Saul, not for disobeying the voice of the Lord. A little bit earlier, Samuel said in verse 17, Though you are little in your own eyes, Saul, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. The Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of God? This whole idea of devoting to destruction meant that everything was meant to be devoted to destruction. Everything. No soldier, no, the nation was not to take any spoil or plunder for themselves, not even for sacrifice. Nothing was to be left standing. It was hands off for any spoil or plunder, completely off limits. And so here we get a very real and tangible flesh and blood example, demonstration of the saying, with the Lord, to obey is better than sacrifice. As Samuel declares the Lord's judgment, against Saul has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord behold to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen better than the fat of rams for rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord He has also rejected you from being king. Samuel's not saying the Lord doesn't like us worshipping him. He's not saying worship and sacrifice for Saul here is completely out of the picture. He's not saying he's negating worship completely, but he's saying comparatively. You can do all the worshipping you want, but unless you hear God's word and do it, worship means nothing because it's not coming from your heart. No amount of worship, whether it's formal or informal, ritualistic sacrifice or otherwise, no matter how heartfelt, can actually replace obedience and submission. What does the Lord require of you? Micah 6 8, you'll know it. But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. The prophet Amos makes one of the most clear and cutting messages of this same matter, saying how the Lord hates his own covenant people's feasts. He takes no delight in their assemblies, their church going. I've had enough of it, he says. I don't even want to hear your music anymore. Away with the noise of your songs. I'm not going to listen. But let justice roll down like waters. 
Let righteousness flow like an ever-flowing stream. Without love, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, without the heart and the love of God in our hearts, whatever I do counts for nothing. Ralph Davis, one commentator, says, All the smoke and fat on Gilgal's altar here would never replace the pleasure God could have had from the living sacrifice of Saul's will. And I've read Samuel's own words here. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Possibly words that Micah and Amos and others have actually gleaned from. What Saul is doing here, what he's done here, as I said, is not just a one-off misdemeanour or sin. It's a reflection of his heart towards God. Rebellion is as the sin of divination. Presumption is as iniquity. You have rejected the word of the Lord. And God himself, back in verse 11, says he's turned away from following me. And so God rejects Saul as king. But one of the things that should strike us here is that God is not a machine here and says, right, because of this, then that. The Lord grieves about what's happening here. He's not a discompassionate deity. He's a God with a heart. He grieves what Saul has done. He regrets having made him as king. And as I said, that word regret raises a couple of issues for us here. It pops up three times in the chapter. Does the Lord have regret or not? It's a word that appears quite a number of times in the Old Testament. And when it, when it occurs in relation to God, the first time is back in Genesis 6 with the flood when the intent of man's heart is only evil all the time and the Lord regrets having made us, humanity, all of us. Sometimes it can mean relent. Moses intercedes for the people and prays that the Lord would relent on finishing them off, which he does. We could spend a long time on this whole Argument, and I recall a Bible college essay um, question on the topic. But the point here, when this word is connected to the Lord and his actions or the actions of his people, it's a deep grief, as the version we had read for us. The Lord grieves that he's made Saul king because of how it's turned out. Now, that might raise a few other questions. Hang on, how can the Lord be surprised at what's happening here? God's sovereign. He knows all things, past, present and future. That's not the argument here. The argument here is the Lord has a heart. And it's torn with what Saul has done. The Lord grieves at our sin. And he grieves at the judgment that needs to be handed down, even though he knows it needs to be handed down. We learn in Ezekiel that the Lord takes no delight in the death of a sinner. No delight in the death of a sinner. But we also learn if they turn away from righteousness to wickedness, well, they'll perish. Shall they live? But it also says, but if a wicked person turns to righteousness and turns to the Lord, they will live. There's always that promise of hope and mercy and the the call of the Lord to turn to him in repentance and faith. That's the word of the Lord we need to be hearing. One writer, Andrew Judd, writing for Gospel Coalition Australia, says this, 
God does not delight in the death of the wicked, but he's not above getting his hands dirty to win back his world. When he uses force, it is, it is as a, when he uses force, it is as a last resort, a measured response to restrain wickedness. He destroys only ever with tears in his eyes and with a view to future salvation. And that's what's happening here with Saul. The Lord's grieved, he regrets, but he's also got the future of his covenant people in mind. And so he's not ashamed, he's not unwilling to get his hands dirty. And it says he won't have regret, he won't relent from the judgment he needs to hand down because there's a greater future to come through the king that needs to come in Saul's place. In that context, the Lord will not have regret. Just as his word regarding Amalek, the Amalekites, that hasn't changed. 300 years that word has stood because of their wickedness against Israel 300 years ago. That will not, the Lord will not relent from that. He will not relent from his judgment against Saul here. Samuel has to finish off the gruesome task of dealing with Agag, doesn't he? Because Saul hasn't done it. Now, we could spend a lot more time here on Saul and the details here. There's some great stuff to look at. His littleness in his own eyes, his pleading with Saul not to come back down to the people without him. He doesn't want to be seen as rejected from the Lord. He's more afraid of what the people see in him than of what the Lord sees in him. The tearing of Samuel's robe. Remember who made that robe? His mother, year after year as he grew up with Eli. And that robe appears again later on. But it's probably here we should actually look at this notion of devoting to destruction. Like I said, it should probably raise a few eyebrows for us and make us cringe a little bit. How do we read this? I was mindful we had our young ones as we had the Bible reading read. I left out the last bit where Samuel cuts up Agag to pieces. And even as adults... Sometimes these sort of passages make us squirm a bit, don't they? But consider this. Where would you and I be? Where would we as believers be if the Lord did not remove his enemies? If the Lord did not destroy wickedness, sin and evil? We may squirm at the idea of the Lord devoting to destruction the Amalekites... But it might surprise us to know this is precisely the kind of justice of God which brings us hope. This is the holy righteousness of God at work upon which we rely upon for our own salvation. If God cannot and does not utterly defeat his enemies and ours, what hope or comfort do we have in the end? If the impenitent guilty do not go unpunished, sorry, if they do go unpunished, what use is the gospel? If sin and evil is simply ignored by God, why did Jesus die on the cross? If God's judgment and his wrath are not things to be fearful of, because God's too nice to let something like that happen, then what is it we are saved from in the end? as brutal and seemingly atrocious as this chapter might sound, this is actually part of the good news of the gospel. 
This is part and parcel of the definition of good news, that God's enemies will not prevail. And be assured, the Amalekites were God's enemies. And it's not just 300 years ago, we're told here, Agag, his own sword, caused women to be without child. You might know the chorus from Isaiah 35, the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come with singing unto Zion. You know that one? An everlasting joy. Do you know the context? It's great, uplifting, get the clapping and the dancing going. Well, just before that, say to those who have an anxious heart, the reason for their everlasting joy and singing is this. Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. That's the source of our everlasting joy there, that God acts in this way. The year of the Lord's favour, Isaiah 61, is also the day of his vengeance. Our salvation, our everlasting joy is dependent upon the defeat, upon the utter destruction of sin and evil. Not just an Old Testament thing. In Colossians we read about it, how on the cross God disarmed principalities and powers, defeating them, triumphing them over them. And Christ himself is the fulfilment of that Old Testament promise way back in Genesis 3, where the Lord says a man, one of your children, of the woman, will crush the head of the serpent. If that crushing doesn't take place, if nothing is ever devoted to destruction, then there's no deliverance for us, for those who trust in the Lord and his reign. Those with beautiful feet who bring good news that your God reigns, Jesus is Lord. Part of that good news and the reigning of Christ as Lord is the fact that he's defeated his enemies completely. He's a conquering king as well as a shepherd king. We're going to hear about David and his experience before he becomes king as a shepherd boy. What did he do about his flock, the sheep that he was looking after, when a bear or a lion came? What did he do if one of them came and took the little lambs? He'd chase after it and grab it by the beard and knock it out. He'd get rid of it, the enemies. We need a shepherd like that, don't we? This is not the Lord going through the sort of passionate anger like the proverbial bull in a china shop. This is the Lord who is slow to anger. He's merciful and gracious, not wanting any to perish but all to come to repentance, which is why he warns us, all the kings and rulers of the world in Psalm 2, kiss the son lest he be angry. God's grace doesn't ignore sin. God in his grace has defeated sin and evil. Yes, he's passed over former sins, but he hasn't ignored them. In his grace, he forgives sin, but he doesn't ignore it. He can't if he remains God, holy and righteous, which is why the Amalekites must be removed. It's why Saul here must be removed. And it's why our own sin needs to be removed from us as far as east is from the west. How else can Paul say, and us with him, I have been crucified with Christ. I've been put to death. In Christ. Something of complete destructions had to happen. 
We've had to die so that we might live. But for that to happen, Christ himself had to die first, didn't he? We have no hope, we have no joy, we have no salvation if the Lord has not come in his holiness and wrath and dealt with sin in this way so that we might live. Our salvation depends upon the unrelentant nature of God, his unrelentant pursuit of us with mercy and grace, his unrelenting holiness against sin and evil and his destruction of all things in opposition to him. We can say with Paul, can't we? I have been crucified with Christ and therefore it's not me who lives but Christ who lives in me. Might raise some eyebrows, this whole thing of devotion to destruction, but this is good news for us to hear. Good news we need to listen to. Good news we need to respond to in faith. Choose life, the Lord says. Choose life. Don't receive the grace of God, his unrelenting love, in vain. It's a choice we can only make by the grace of God. It's a choice we only make because of the grace of God. Because he's first chosen us in his son. We're going to leave it there. Let's stand together and sing. As a prayer of thanks and praise, we're going to sing, Oh, the mercy of God.